I'm going to read three texts uh, on page nine. They're all from the New Testament. The first one's from Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. And from 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And from Matthew 22. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, of which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Such famous passages, all three of them. And so it'd be great if you could keep them handy as I'm going to sort of speak uh, through them this evening. There are deep longings in the human heart. We long for love. Selfless, trustworthy, unconditional love from people we can trust, people who are faithful to us, people who remain with us for the long term. We long for unity within the great diversity of humanity, some means by which we can live in peace and oneness that benefits each of us. We long for communication whether it be face-to-face conversations or the myriad of new ways the digital age has created to fill our seemingly insatiable appetite to speak and be spoken to, to know others and be known. We long for community, 
deep and authentic relationships with others so that we're part of a people devoted to something larger and greater than ourselves. We long for humility, where people pour themselves out unreservedly for the benefit and well-being of others. We long for peace, misery, harmony and safety for ourselves and others so that abuse, cruelty, misery and the painful tears they cause can cease for our we long for a selfless common good for altruism with no hidden agenda for a world in which everyone does all a world not so exclusively devoted to self deep longings pervade human psyche pervade in our hearts why why do we have these persistent, deep longings or disappointed compel us to action and often leave us frustrated or disappointed? Where do they come from and how can they be? For communication, community, humility, peace and selflessness are in fact by design. God has placed them in us. And today I want to go even further and suggest that they are longings for which we have been made. And they are longings for a world as it should be, a world as it was intended to be, a world, human communities, that are a reflection of the first community, the ideal community, the Trinity. God is community. God is relationship. God is friendship, God is love. This is what the Trinity means. And so today, uh, on this Trinity Sunday, we come to the startlingly rich, but also historically very difficult doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, at Churchill, as Justin alluded to earlier, we're taking a short three-week break from our series in James, in which we're looking at the character of God. We've called the series, This is Our God. And we're taking our themes from the Anglican liturgical calendar. And so two weeks ago, the ascension of Jesus on the Sunday after the ascension. Uh, last week, gifts given by Jesus from on high when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the first Pentecost Sunday. So two foundational events in the Christian faith. And today on Trinity Sunday, one foundational reality about the Christian faith, about the nature of God. He is triune, three in one. Three persons and yet one God. One God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son and Spirit, who are each fully and equally God in eternal relation to each other which is a difficult concept to get our minds around. In fact, so much so that the renowned Anglican theologian J.I. Packer said, the historic doctrine of the Trinity confronts us with perhaps the most difficult thought the human mind has ever been asked to handle. One plus one plus one doesn't equal one. And so we're left with a, a mathematical conundrum that hurts our minds. 
which then well leads many Christians to write this one off as a matter for advanced philosophers, not for ordinary believers. And the problem is compounded because when we turn to the pages of Scripture, well, there's no one single go-to passage on the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, this week I heard one preacher refer to it like looking for a book that goes into great detail in order to prove that the world is round. Not flat, but round. But, well, there are no books on the topic because everyone knows that the world is round and so it is everywhere assumed. In the Bible and especially so in the New Testament, God's three-in-oneness is everywhere assumed. It's always in the background, but very rarely in the foreground because it's everywhere assumed. There is one God who is three persons, each person being fully God. And well, the Old Testament majors on that first part, there is one God. It majors on monotheism, because of the polytheism and idolatry of the surrounding nations. And so you get famous verses like Deuteronomy 6.4, uh, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you get long stretches like in Isaiah chapter 43 through 45, in which the message is very clear. Uh, God says, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. There is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is one God. And yet even in the Old Testament, there are hints of Trinity. God refers to himself in plural form, not I, but us. For example, in Genesis 1.26, which said, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Not I and my, but us and our. There is one God who is three persons. And then, well, there are the prophets and the Psalms and the wisdom literature and the historical narratives with their references to the Spirit of God, the angel of the Lord, and the Messiah, each implicitly, if not explicitly, attributing personhood and deity to the Spirit and the Son. There is one God who is three persons, each being fully God. And of course, the New Testament then blows this right open uh, with God's three-in-oneness everywhere assumed. Uh, for example, listen to how John introduces Jesus uh, at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, and then well, in John 10, uh, when Jesus says, I am and the Father are one, well, at that point his enemies, uh, knowing what he's claiming, uh, they pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. Later in John 20, another example, Thomas addresses Jesus there as my Lord and my God. Key moments in Jesus' life are also thoroughly Trinitarian. For example, at the start of his ministry, at his baptism by John, Father, Son and Spirit are there. Heaven's torn open. The Father says, this is my Son, and then the Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove. In Jesus' last words, the Great Commission Thoroughly Trinitarian as well, as we'll see in a moment. And then there are the New Testament letters. Uh, they're opening and closing, uh, opening prayers and closing benedictions. The Trinity so often in the background, just underneath the surface. 
like the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Here's how it begins. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Or the last verse of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There is one God who is three persons, each being fully God. And by the way, don't miss that last bit, or else you might be tempted to think of God as a pie, where the Father has a third of the pie, and then the Son has a third of the pie, and then the Holy Spirit has a third of the pie. Wrong. Because Colossians 2.9 says, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus Christ bodily. All the fullness of the Godhead. Which means it's not enough just to say that there are three gods. There aren't. There is one God in three persons in the one being. But then it's, it's not enough to say that each person is one third of the being of God. Because actually, each one contains the other two. It bends our minds, like an Escher drawing. But just like wave theory in particle physics, or our limitless ever-expanding universe, or any number of things just off the edge of our understanding, just because we cannot intellectually grasp it doesn't make it untrue. The Trinity is like a, a, a 3D object in a 2D world, or a 20D object in a 3D world. After all, should it, should it really surprise us, given our physical human limitations, that we fail to fully understand the nature of a transcendental God who exists unbound by the limits of time and space? 20D in our 3D? And this concept of the Trinity, well, it's unique to Christianity. No other religions have it. Because no one would have ever made this stuff up. There's no parallel in human experience. Even our language is placed under strain when we speak about it. And we can only speak about this mystery because God has spoken it about himself in Scripture, where his Trinitarian nature is regularly assumed, regularly in the background. And look, I'll turn to our first passage. Here's an example of the Trinity in the background. A crucially important part of the text, but not the major idea of the text. Uh, Matthew 28, the last words of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' great commission, uh, our first Bible reading. And when we hear it read, our first thoughts rightly turn to mission, at taking the Gospel to the nations, because that's what the passage is all about. But this passage is also arguably the most important statement on the Trinity in Scripture. Do you see Jesus' words there? Verse 19. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Not in the names of the Father, Son and Spirit, but in the name of and the Greek here is helpful to us as well, the Greek that sits underneath the English of our translations. 
Uh, firstly, the, the preposition in, uh, in the Greek, it is ice, that, that's the Greek term, uh, which has a, has a stronger meaning. Uh, not so much in, uh, but more like into. And in the Bible, well, God's name is also a much deeper concept than merely a title. Uh, for example, in 2 Samuel, God says that Solomon will build a house for his name, which means for his presence, for his being, a house in which his being will dwell. And so here in Matthew 28, we have some of the most important words that Jesus ever uttered, his final words of commissioning to his disciples and all who would follow them. And in these words, Jesus frames up for us how we are to understand the nature of God. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the being of Father, Son, and Spirit. One being, three persons, all equally God. Our second passage there from 1 John 4 is also another passage in which the Trinity is in the background. I'm sure Father, Son, and Spirit pop their heads up there together in verses 13 and 14. But when we pan back and look at this famous passage on God who is love, we realise, as I hope you're about to see, that it is thoroughly Trinitarian. Have a brief look, sort of scanning through it. Love comes from God, verse 7. Uh, if we love one another, God lives in us, verse 12. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them, verse 16. God is love. That's verse 8 and verse 16. Right at the start and right at the finish and right the way through, uh, this passage is basically stating to us that God is love. And as Justin read earlier, um, C.S. Lewis reflected on this um, and showed us that this is well, this is Trinitarian. God is love. Lewis's words. All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning, unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. And you know John who wrote uh, 1 John 4 um, was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, so he often wrote and reflected on uh, love. And in fact there's a beautiful story about him told by Jerome, one of the early church fathers, about John in his old age, very likely well into his 90s. And we can't be sure of the historical accuracy of that account, uh, but it smacks of eyewitness testimony. Uh, handed down from uh, a gentleman by the name of Polycarp, uh, who was a contemporary of John. John was in his 90s, and Polycarp was a young boy. Well, either way, Jerome records the story of the Apostle John uh, being carried around in advanced age uh, by his disciples, repeating over and over, little children love one another. Little children love one another. And when asked why he only said these words, John replied, because it is the Lord's command, and if this only is done, it is enough. Jesus placed love at the centre of everything too. Our last reading there is profound. 
When asked the most important commandment, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Everything hangs on these two. My uncle passed away suddenly this week. His leukaemia returned suddenly and aggressively. You may have heard it said, and if you have heard it said, then you need to know it's true. In those last conversations, no one expresses regret over not spending more time in the office, not working harder and achieving more. In our dying moments, it's our relationships that matter to us most. Precious time spent with children, husbands, wives and friends. In those final moments, it's broken relationships that grieve us most. Relationships. Why? Well, the answer goes right up into the very heart of God. Since before the beginning of time, our triune God has existed in a continual outpouring of other person-centered love, overflowing from father to son, from son to spirit, from spirit to father, from spirit to son, from son to father, and from father to spirit, living in perfect relationship, perfect happiness, perfect fulfillment. God is love. God is friendship. God is family. Is it any wonder then that the deepest longing of our hearts is relationship to love and be loved? And so, now that we've sort of battled through the difficult, abstract nature of the doctrine of the Trinity, we can explore, I think, now some of its stunning implications for the Christian life. But just in case you missed it before, I know there's been some big ideas. At the heart of the universe, our triune God has eternally existed in a continual outpouring of other person-centered love and service. And out of the overflow of their love and happiness, out of the overflow of God's love and happiness, our world was made. And so here's three stunning, beautiful, life-transforming implications of this foundational reality of life, the universe, and everything. If God is three in one, if from all eternity he's been three persons, what does that mean? Well, at the beginning it means... Love is more important than success. Servanthood means everything. And happiness is not what you think. Love is more important than success. Servanthood means everything. And happiness is not what you think. Uh, firstly then, um, the Trinity means that love is more important than success. God from all eternity has been a community of beings, loving one another, glorifying one another, communicating with one another. Before his work in creation, before he made things, created things, or accomplished things, God was love. God was love 
before he was anything else. And this means love is ultimate reality. Love is the meaning of the universe. Because God is a family. God is friendship. God is relationship. And he was love before he began to do anything or create anything. And this means then that if you and I are made in the image of God, and that God was love before anything else, before he created other things or did anything, then love is the meaning of things, the ultimate reality. Love is the cosmic ultimate reality. Love and communication have been a part of the very being of God since all eternity, meaning that love and friendships and family are more important than anything else in your life. As my time at St. Vincent's this week reminded me, love is more important than our success. Secondly, servanthood means everything. John, who wrote so often about love, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly also wrote some of the key passages in the Bible on the Trinity. Uh, John 17 is one of these. And you know, we have this Trinitarian picture of the Son glorifying the Father, the Father glorifying the Son and the Spirit glorifying the Father. What does glorify mean? It means to adore. It means to serve. It means to delight. It means to bless. What you do when you love someone more than anything, you express that love by delighting in them and delighting them, blessing them, serving them. But what this means is that each of the persons of the Trinity do not demand glory, but give glory. There's an other person orientation within the Godhead, with each member deferring to, giving love to, serving each other. What this means is that servanthood, giving up your rights, giving up your power, serving and caring for other people instead of yourself, is at the heart of the universe. The Trinity, the first community, the ideal community, the only community not stained by sin and therefore the only community to model our friendships off, our marriages off, our church communities off, is characterised eternally by love expressed through service of each other. And we see it in Jesus, don't we? Who was just living this out? He was just being himself when he stepped down, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The way up is down. True greatness is becoming the servant of all. At the heart of the universe is love expressed through service. Servanthood means everything. Finally, the Trinity means happiness is, well, it's not what you think. At this point, I'd like to take a little bit of a step back and have a think not so much about a Trinitarian God, so three persons, but about a scenario in which God was a unipersonal God, so just one person. Why would a unipersonal God create a world and human beings? Well, one answer might be maybe to get people to worship him and love him. 
But is that what a triune God would do? No. Why? Well, because a, a triune God already has all the love and adoration that he, they, could ever want. Each person of the Trinity already has all the love and adoration they could ever want. They give it to each other continually and perfectly. Well then, why would a triune God create a world and call that world to adore God? Why did then our triune God create the world? It's really exciting. See, the answer is that the Trinity wants a world full of people who are as happy as God is. You see, God is infinitely happy. When have you been happiest in, in your whole life? I mean, think about it. Think about it for a moment. The answer for almost all people is when you've got someone who adores you and who you adore. When you're sitting there basking in someone's love and they're basking in your love. Parent to child, grand, grandparent to grandchild, friend to friend, uh, romance, marriage, friendship. And that's just a dim hint of the incredible happiness that the Father, Son and Holy Spirit have had since all eternity. And it was out of the overflow of their happiness that our world was created. And created in their image, true happiness then is only found in the model that they hold forward, which means that happiness is not what you think. Happiness isn't wealth and leisure. Happiness isn't promotion and power. Happiness isn't financial security and, and fitness. Happiness is trinity, the cloth from which we were cut, the rock from which we were hewn, the mould from which we were cast, the clay from which we are formed. Happiness is trinity, unity and diversity, loving unreservedly, communicating truthfully, living connectedly, serving selflessly, loving Lord and neighbour with heart, soul, mind and strength, our deepest longings finally fulfilled. I don't understand the Trinity. No one really does. But I am so glad it's true. Somehow deep down in our beings, baptised into the being of God, Father, Son and Spirit, we know it to be true, resonating as it does with the deepest longings of our hearts. You know, I read a lot this week in preparation for this sermon, but I think Tim Keller, as he so often does, says it best. He, he says, The idea that this universe is basically created out of an explosion of the inner joy of God in an effort to get other people to be brought into this circle of joy, glory and love of the Trinity is the most wonderful understanding of reality, the most wonderful understanding of the meaning of the universe that there is. God is community. God is relationship. God is friendship. God is family. God really is love. This is our God. Let me pray. 
Our Lord and God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you so much for revealing yourself to us, your eternal nature to us in the pages of Scripture. We pray in step with um, some of these thoughts tonight that you would expand our hearts, expand our minds to more fully see and appreciate you for who you truly are. And come to understand the glorious implications your eternal nature has for the way we love and serve each other and our happiness in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.